Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts, and more at climateone.org. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Your carbon footprint depends as much on the car you drive as the food you eat. So is going vegan the key to eating a climate-friendly diet? There are three keys to sustainable food production, and those are water, soil, and microbiology. So when you get rid of animals, you're actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater because they're an essential part of sustainable food production. Could food be a way to get more people engaged around climate change? People aren't connecting with this. I don't have an emotional connection with the electrical grid, but I can tell you about the foods I ate, and that will connect me back to you. And I believe this is the pathway to change because every food is under threat. Climate change on your kitchen table. Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Our industrial economy and its destabilizing pollution is changing how we grow and eat some of our favorite foods. Our show today explores the impacts of climate disruption on the foods we love. Chocolate, wine, beer, bread, and other sensual pleasures. What are farmers and food companies doing to give people more healthy and tasty choices for the food they put on their kitchen table? We'll learn about whether all those craft beers, fair trade coffees, and single batch chocolates are part of the solution. And we'll ask about food security in the United States and abroad. Can GMOs help feed a hot and crowded world of 9 billion people? Joining Greg today are three foodies. John Foley is executive director of the California Academy of Sciences and an agricultural expert. Simran Sethi is a journalist who has covered science and the environment and is author of the book Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. And Helene York is Global Director for Responsible Business at Bon Appetit Management Company, which provides food to Google and other companies and colleges at 650 cafes around the country. Here's Greg talking about the future of food. Simran Sethi, let's begin with your story. You write that you quit a job you couldn't get fired from, sold your house, gave away your car, and started a journey to learn how to save foods we love. So first of all, why did you do that? And then tell us about that journey. Why? You know, I felt like once I I was in Italy doing research for a fellowship, and I was looking at GMOs, and one had to make the case for being in Italy. So I was trying to penetrate the Vatican and really explore the moral imperatives for and against genetic engineering. And I was speaking to scientist after scientist, and what they kept saying to me was, that's something that's a big deal in your country, but what we're concerned about is the loss of agrobiodiversity. And I thought to myself, I had been, you know, I, I was a tenured associate professor. So that was a job I couldn't get fired from. And I was teaching all my courses through the lens of food. I am someone who is quite interested in what I eat, how I eat, and and eating well. And this wasn't something that was on my radar. And Mm. once I found out more about it, once I understood that every element that makes food and agriculture possible was being compromised, the loss of agricultural biodiversity in the soil, the seed, the pollinators, plants, animal, aquatic life, um, I realized that this was a story I had to tell. So I left my job. (laughs) I quit the job I couldn't get fired from. And I embarked on a five-year journey across six continents to better understand the sources of our food, the centers of origin, the centers of diversity, and the reason sustaining this diversity mattered. Helene York, tell us about your story. You manage food supply chains for large organizations. How did you come to that? I, I found an ad in Craigslist. <laughs> um, seriously, that I, I've always loved food. I'm from a family that um, emigrated to the United States in the food business. But uh, really what I have done my entire career has been 
the translator between business and environmental science, between the private sector and the public sector. And I'm really interested in the, in the relationships, in building partnerships. Um, it seems to me there's this extraordinary divide between urban people and rural people who actually grow our food. Mm -hmm. And this is true in many places around the world, definitely here in the United States. The first job I took with Bon Appetit was actually as an educator as well, um, which was to teach chefs about how their choices in seafood could really enact um, more sustainable seafood and become part of a global movement. And this was back in the days when the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program was very young, still trying to figure out a lot of things, but very much rooted in science and trying to translate that to chefs who are like, my customers want tuna or salmon, salmon or tuna, mm -hmm. and, and really try to broaden their horizons. And it really has led me on a path to ask many, many, many questions. I am now a supply chain manager, um, coaching chefs and procurement officers on six continents. Jonathan Foley, you recently moved from the land of corn to the land of Chardonnay here in the Bay Area. But, uh, so tell us about how your journey coming to, to food as a deep expertise. Well, it's funny. I, I'm a global environmental scientist, and I've worked on issues like climate change, on biodiversity loss, on freshwater issues, kind of all these doom and gloom issues, right? Um, and one thing that kept on popping up every single time was the importance of the food system as the biggest culprit. Uh, in the environment. Uh, for example, on water, you know, 70% of all the water in the world we use is used for one thing, irrigating crops. And then if you think about land, by far the biggest clearer of ecosystems, the biggest consumer of forest lands, of biodiversity habitat, again, is agriculture and food. And even on climate change, even though we tend to think of climate change as primarily an energy issue, uh, about a quarter or so, maybe even as high as 30%, somewhere around that number, of all the climate change emissions we cause as a species come, again, from agriculture and associated land use. That's bigger than any of the individual energy sectors. It's bigger than all the world's electricity, all the transportation in the world, all the manufacturing, you name it. So no matter where you look around the planet, agriculture is kind of the biggest thing this planet has been hit by since the last ice age. And uh, we don't really think about it that way. Uh, yes, climate change is about as much what we eat as what we drive or where we live. Simran Sethi, let's talk about taste. You convey some interesting things about taste, the importance of shape and the foods that we taste. And we were talking earlier about the importance of sound. So let's unpack the taste part of this, the fun part of it. You know, I've been working and, and talking about environmental issues for quite some time. And what wasn't happening was a lot of traction. And as I started to gravitate toward what I love, which is eating, um, <laughs> I realized, like, wow, I can tell every story I want to tell about environmental issues through what I put in my mouth. And so I feel like flavor is actually the pathway to <clears throat> conservation. We save foods by savoring them. We fall in love with something and we don't want to let it go. and We don't want to have it disappear. And so for me, trying to unpack flavor was looking at all the factors that influence what flavor becomes. A lot of us kind of think of it as taste in the mouth. You put something in your mouth, it's sweet or bitter, we're done. But it's sight, it's sound, it's taste, it's smell, it's everything coming together. And it's recognizing it's about the actual flavor of something, but that flavor is influenced by every single factor. The lighting, the sound in the room, the shape of the object, the wrapper that it comes in. And to me, that's one of the more fascinating aspects of this because it points to the fact that there are many ways to change our behavior and to change what and how we eat. And part of it is by looking at the environment in which it exists. Well, some people buy specialty products, whether it's fancy chocolate or coffee, you know, these sort of uh, uh, craft breweries, those sorts of things that perhaps uh, pay their workers more, there might be fair trade. Are those niche kind of things going to change the broader system, or are they just confined to that little niche and people can feel good about eating these things with uh, you know, organic coffee from Whole Foods, but is that really changing the system? Uh, I think it's both. I, I feel that systemic change happens niche by niche. 
We do this one cup at a time, one glass at a time, one decision at a time. And, you know, oftentimes it feels absolutely overwhelming, especially for me. In the work I did, increasingly the response was, write your elected official. And that notion to me seems, you know, sometimes like I just want to put my head under the pillow and, and, and never get up again. <laughs> but if this, and you know, maybe the solution is these quick and easy tips, right? Uh, change your light bulb, get a reusable bag, what have you. Well, you know, looking into the psychology of this, I was asking myself, why haven't recycling rates changed? Why isn't there more engagement around climate change? We're talking ourselves blue in the face here. What isn't happening? Well, what isn't happening is people aren't connecting with this. I don't have an emotional connection with the electrical grid, but mm. I can tell you about the foods I ate, and that mm. will connect me back to you. And I believe this is the pathway to change. It feels audacious to say, change the entire agricultural system. But if we start with that one morning cup of coffee, and we recognize that chain, I talk about bread, wine, coffee, chocolate, and beer in the book, and I say, map it onto any food that you love, because every food is under threat. And that was really the idea. I can't tell you about everything that we grow and eat, but I can start with the things that are meaningful to me. And from there, you'll find your own connection and forge it and start to make meaning. You know, coffee has set the tone for every day of my adult life. And it's something, <laughs> you know, chocolate, birthday cake, wedding cake, divorce substance. This is how it goes. This is, it, this is the threat of my life. And my God, if I hear that this is under threat, maybe I'll perk up and take notice. Maybe I'll take action. But if it's just the generic, like, the entire agricultural system is, you know, threatened and it's, it's cause and effect and this is what's happening, this is what will happen, you know, it's a little, I think it's a little tougher sell. So, Jonathan, tell us, how is climate change threatening the things we love, coffee, chocolate, beer, wine? Yeah, well, it was fascinating when you were talking about, you know, using the things we love. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sorry to you know, divert a little bit, but that's something I've learned. I now run a science museum. And uh, the thing I've learned, uh, the fascinating thing, is if you want to get into somebody's head, you have to go through their heart mm-hmm. first. And for us, it's maybe not the objects of food, but it's to, like I can talk to anybody about climate change by showing them a coral reef mm-hmm. or a rainforest. Everybody loves fish. Everybody loves parrots and stuff. And it doesn't become such an acrimonious or abstract notion. It's very tangible everybody's pro-beauty and awe and inspiration, and that's also in our food. So I just want to echo that, boy, that seems to make a lot of sense. But in that kind of global picture, yeah, climate change, uh, and more importantly, um, things like, you know, disruption of water resources are happening irrespective of climate change, and soil degradation are dramatically affecting a lot of the crops we depend on. But also what you've written about is how it's not just the environment changing what's being grown and how it grows, but also what we choose to grow. We're massively simplifying all the varieties of crops we grow so that there are fewer and fewer varieties in a changing planet. That's kind of a recipe for disaster. You know, there's fewer and fewer varieties of tomatoes being grown, fewer and fewer pulses, grains, you name it. And uh, in a world where we don't know uh, if climate extremes are going to be happening more frequently, but it's a good bet, that's not a smart strategy. So that's what we're seeing right now. It's, it's a little bit of hit on yields, but more importantly, it's probably a less resilient food system because we're putting more and more bets on fewer and fewer spots on the table, and then the dice are getting loaded. Simran Sethi, you started off talking about you were doing a deep dive on the, on the moral implications of GMOs. Where did you come down on GMOs? Good thing, bad thing, somewhere in the middle? Somewhere in the middle, in part because the technology has changed. We're not looking at you know, recombinant DNA technology or applying it in the same ways that we did before. Much of the way that this technology has historically been used is for um, resistance to insecticides and herbicides and pesticides. So that's very different than targeting certain foods and trying to biofortify them or create something that is more nutritious. And um, my biggest concern is that, you know, one in eight here in the United States is hungry. We're throwing 40% of our food away. These aren't straight lines, but these are things that we need to unpack and things that we really need to understand and, and, and try to grapple with in a way that, that brings more people to the table and that starts to understand that what we have an absence of is justice and equity. It's not that we can't feed people. It's that people, some of the, the poorest people in the world, ironically, are smallholder farmers. Yeah. We don't have enough money to buy this food. And that's where the problem is. You know, we can feed ourselves in an extraordinary way in, in, without a 
lot of genetic engineering if we allowed biodiversity to thrive. But again, we're not doing that. We're moving toward an industrialized system where the global standard diet is largely comprised of wheat, rice, corn, soybean, and palm oil. So now, you know, people are suffering, you know, greater amounts of obesity than being underweight, but we're all kind of malnourished in the middle. So, so I think that there's a lot of places that we need to look to for solutions that don't simply point to the direction of genetic engineering. We're talking about the future of food at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We're picking up the conversation now about the future of food with John Foley, Executive Director of the California Academy of Sciences, Simran Sethi, author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love, and Helene York, Global Director for Responsible Business at Bon Appetit Management Company. Here's our host, Greg Dalton. I think we've got through this program so far without mentioning cheese, uh, which is a little bit surprising. Uh, but I want to talk <laughs> ab- about uh, Russell Simmons, who's one of the world's most famous environmental activists and entertainers, uh, wrote a book earlier this year called The Happy Vegan, in which he says that animal products are destroying our planet. Let's take a listen to part of an interview that Russell Simmons did with Big Boy Radio back in April. The cow's number one cause of global warming by far. Mm. almost twice the trains, planes, and automobiles. So when you think about you know, the, the animal uh, industry and how much harm it's causing, especially the factory farming industry in America, you think you got to warn the people. FDA is not doing it. Right. They tell you milk does a body good. Milk right. is a straight poison. That's the entertainer uh, and vegan advocate, Russell Simmons. Uh, Helene York, you love cheese. Uh, love cheese. Are, are cows evil? Are they a big part of the climate, uh, climate problem? Oh, yeah, tremendously. Although I have to give a lot of credit to the dairy industry in the United States is really understands that uh, the contribution they play and have really worked to improve uh, efficiencies. That said, um, you know, cheese. It is. That's one of those. (laughs) I have to tell you. So I had a I had a program that I developed. It was a teaching program, both for chefs and uh, primarily for chefs, uh, called the Low Carbon Diet Program. This was 2007, 2008, and it was really trying to get chefs to buy less uh, beef, uh, less cheese, waste less food. All the sort of standard things. Now they're standard. They were kind of eye popping to chefs and heart-wrenching to many of them in 2007. But we really started talking about, like, you know, cheese shouldn't just be a slice of cheddar. You know, 20 years ago it used to be a slice of American. Now it's cheddar. But so what? It's kind of the same thing, really. (laughs) And um, we really need to value it. You know, eat less, enjoy it more. I feel really quite strongly about that. And I think that's true of meat. I think that's true of dairy products. We've radically increased uh, the amount of cheese that we've eaten. Less milk, more cheese. It's all kind of the same thing. Um, So many issues. The whole industry has changed just tremendously in California. We've lost many, many small dairy farms. It's a complicated subject, but I guess my reaction to that quick video is that you know, I think we need to have strong point of views, but we also need to embrace the producers and try to really make it easier for them to do the right thing uh, in their production practices so that they don't feel defiant or that we're against them. Um, we don't want to get rid of cheese, but we want better cheese and we want it probably eat a little less of it, which you can do. You can mask it with some good culinary techniques. Jonathan Foley, you came from Minnesota near the land of Cheeseheads, Wisconsin, et cetera. Um, We know that as uh, incomes rise around the world, there's dietary affluence and people crave that animal protein. So while we might follow Helene York's advice and eat less in the United States globally, isn't it just going to rise? Yeah, that's a really important point. Um, You hear a lot of rhetoric today, especially in the food industry circles, about feeding 9 billion people Mm -hmm. as if the 2 billion more people were really the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not the problem. Uh, The problem is the 7 billion people already here. Uh, In fact, about 4 billion of the 7 already here are getting richer fast. India, China, you know, Southeast Asia, Russia, Brazil, you know, all the intermediate developing countries. We're developing a global 
middle class for the very first time in human history. And if they follow the same path of Western countries, and as we got wealthier, we ate a lot more meat, a lot more dairy, and a lot more other things that probably aren't very good for us, and certainly not good for the planet. So it turns out that's what's driving most of the demand for increasing food demand in the world, is not population growth. No, it's affluence. And that's a choice, how much we eat. Nobody's forcing the world to eat like Americans, you know, uh, or all this extra cheese. I like to look at food at the, the ratio of good that it does for the world. What nutritional value did it give you? What jobs did it create? What culture did it enhance? Divided by the environmental and social harms that it might have caused all the way through its supply chain. And there, meat and dairy products look a little tough. And we probably need to cut back on those. Not, and not just other folks. We primarily in countries like the U.S. need to be the start of that conversation. We're talking about the future of food at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you very much. I appreciated hearing all your words. Uh, my question is about urgency. You speak about it would be great if you know, we ate a little less meat or a little less dairy and had a little more consciousness. And I think those are all wonderful things, and I applaud you saying that. But I'd love your perspectives on should we be eating like no meat or like one day a week? Like how severe and how much impact can we as individuals have and in that kind of context. Johnson Foley, is individual incremental action enough? It can't be the only solution. I and mean, I think that's why not just talking about sacrifice, but talking about things people love and making people's lives better. Like reducing food waste is good for your pocketbook. It's good for, you know, the planet. It's good for everybody. You know, there's no downside to reducing food waste. Um, one little story about food waste is I run two kitchens at the museum I work at. You know, uh, one is for people. We have a million and a half guests a year. We run a second restaurant, though, for 40,000 animals <laughs> that we happen to take care of, and they probably eat better than I do. And uh, one thing that's kind of funny is one day the biologist who prepares the food for all the fish and the penguins and all the birds and stuff, the shipment of fresh organic produce that the animals eat, they eat that too, got mixed up and it got sent to our human cafe. <laughs> True story, I swear to God. So the biologist is running upstairs like, damn it, my bananas and apples and everything else got delivered to the regular cafe. And he gets up there and they joke around and say, hey, wait a minute, these are the same boxes. We're ordering from the same farmer, the same days of the week. We could at least reduce a trip or two right there. But then the biologist from the aquarium was talking to the cafe people, said, what do you do when a banana goes bad or an apple has got a bruise on it? And they say, well, actually, we can't sell that during lunchtime, so it goes to the compost. They're like, no, it doesn't anymore. It comes to us. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the food waste from the human cafeteria is now going to the fish cafeteria. And the fish don't care. <laughs> they don't know. It's all good. So while you know, the personal virtue side of like maybe 20 people in the academy will stop eating meat tomorrow if I ask them to or something, we got you know, thousands of pounds of food waste diverted and used very efficiently. So there's personal action, but there's also kind of what can you do in the places you work and you go to school and you hang out every day. And there are lots of those examples. I bet you have a hundred stories like that. Yep. We're going to go to our lightning round with our guests, Jonathan Foley, Simran Sethi, and Helene York. True or false, fancy buffets at Silicon Valley company campuses include fine chocolates to soothe the techies who aren't getting much sex. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it might be said that the fine chocolate is to increase their chances of... <laughs> Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Jonathan Foley, you're entertaining a chocolate exhibit at the California Academy of Sciences that will arouse your donors and open their hearts and wallets. True or false? Uh, false, but a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Simran Sethi, Americans often complain about simple things over a cup of coffee made with beans grown by farmers who often don't have their basic needs met. Sad, but true. Helene York, true or false? Big Ag gets a bad rap. Big ag gets a bad rap, true. Middle ag gets a bad rap because people think it's big ag, but that's actually the responsible sector that we need to grow and support. Middle ag. Jonathan Foley, uh, true or false, the mega merger between Monsanto and German chemical giant Bayer will result in even more concentration of power in fewer hands. Uh, sadly true. Simran Sethi, True or false, mixing two bad wines together can create something good. Yes, and this comes from Ann Noble, the woman who created the original aroma wheel for wine, is like a professor emeritus at UC Davis, and she says, absolutely. 
Have you personally verified this? I have not. Uh, okay. <laughs> Last one for this section for uh, Simran Sethi. Uh, yes or no? There's no we in chocolate. There is only I. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is a word association part. Um, I mentioned a word or two words, and you uh, ask each of our guests to uh, respond one to three words. Jonathan Foley, corn ethanol. Really bad idea. <laughs> Helene York, aquaculture. Responsible aquaculture is good. Simran Sethi, three musketeers candy bar. Ooh, not my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Helene York, Chipotle. A spice I love. Oh. oh. <laughs> Chipotle, the Mexican uh, food company, formerly owned by McDonald's, has had some supply chain problems. That's uh, too many words, Greg. Uh, <laughs> fill in the gaps. Helene York, uh, who works for Google Food, Yahoo Food. Uh, my colleagues do a great job. Simran Sethi, chocolate beer. Oxymoron. Simran <clears throat> Sethi, kale. Not my favorite. All right. <laughs> that ends the lightning round. Let's give them a round of applause. I think they did really well. <laughs> You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking with John Foley, Executive Director of the California Academy of Sciences, Simran Sethi, author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love, and Helene York, Global Director for Responsible Business at Bon Appetit Management Company. We'd like to know how things are changing on your kitchen table. Our email is climate1 at commonwealthclub.org. Or join us on Twitter. Our handle is at climate1. We're going to turn now to a conversation about a controversial film that basically says humanity is toast unless we go vegan. The documentary Cowspiracy holds that animal agriculture is the number one source of climate-killing pollution and that the notion of a sustainable meat production is a sham. Others, however, claim that responsibly raised livestock play an indispensable role in healthy ecosystems. At the very least, the film offers an opportunity to ask questions about producing and consuming food in an era of climate disruption. Joining Greg to debate good and bad beef are Kip Anderson, co-director of Cowspiracy and founder of AUM Films and Media, a nonprofit focused on promoting compassion and harmony for all life. Nicole Han Nyman, a vegetarian who raises cattle north of San Francisco. She's a critic of industrial meat production and the author of two books, Righteous Pork Chop, Finding a Life and Good Food Beyond Factory Farms, and Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production. And Jonathan Kaplan, director of the Food and Agricultural Program at the National Resources Defense Council, where he leads initiatives to reduce antibiotic use in the livestock industry and eliminate toxic chemicals from the food supply. Here's our conversation about cowspiracy. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, let's begin in 2006. The Food and Agriculture Organization issues a seminal report called <clears throat> Livestock's Long Shadow. Tell us about that report and what it said. So um, up until that point, there wasn't a lot of talk about livestock as a major contributor to uh, global warming. And in 2006, the Food and Agriculture Organization published the report Livestock's Long Shadow, which basically said it was all livestock together contributed about 18% of total global warming gases globally. Now, the figure looked at a lot of issues in defending beef. I argue that a lot of the figures should not have been included in that 18% because, for example, about 38% of that total 18% was actually from land use changes. So it wasn't actually directly related to livestock raising. It was primarily deforestation in Brazil, Indonesia, and Sudan. And there were other issues. But it was a pivotal moment in this discussion because um, the media really got a hold of that idea. And in, the, in their headline, in their press release, they said that livestock actually caused more global warming emissions than auto or transportation. And they later acknowledged that that was actually incorrect. Jonathan Kaplan, it's big, six, whatever the, the number is, it's big, and animal agriculture has a big impact on the planet. I think that's the bottom line for your listeners. L livestock industry is big when it comes to carbon, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. I do uh, wonder about the study that says it's 51%. I don't, you know, I'm not convinced it's the biggest. When you look at the U United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, EPA, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
all those agencies put the number more like you know 14, 15 percent. Um, but that's still a really big number. So you know I don't want to like dust that under the rug. And I think most Americans probably don't realize that the number's as big as it is. We're not going to debate uh, percentages all night, I guarantee you. Uh, but I do want to get a baseline here. Let's, Adam, roll clip one. We're going to show you some of Cowspiracy and then have Kip and Jonathan respond. I thought I was doing everything I could to help the planet. But then, with one friend's post, everything changed. The Post sent me to a report online published by the United Nations stating that raising livestock produces more greenhouse gases than the emissions of the entire transportation sector. This means that the meat and dairy industry produces more greenhouse gases than the exhaust of all cars, trucks, trains, boats, planes combined. Cows and other farmed animals produce a substantial amount of methane from their digestive process. Methane gas from livestock is 86 times more destructive than carbon dioxide from vehicles. Here, I've been riding my bike everywhere to help reduce emissions, but it turns out there's more to climate change than just fossil fuels. I started doing more research. The UN, along with other agencies, reported that not only did livestock play a major role in global warming, it is also the leading cause of resource consumption and environmental degradation destroying the planet today. Kip Anderson, your response. Um, So this one industry is a one-stop shop for if not the number one or two leading cause of deforestation, water consumption, water depletion, ocean dead zones, uh, we've already admitted uh, somewhere up there of greenhouse gases, wildlife killing, the list goes on and on, a one-stop shop. And you go on these, these, these um, environmental groups' websites, and you see this tucked away deep, deep in these organizations' websites. You can't even see it. It needs to be on the forefront. Attention, newsflash, we just found out this one industry is destroying <clears throat> the entire planet on one single issue. And the definition of a conspiracy is a group of people gathering together of doing something harmful. And when, when this industry knows, and I know NRDC knows, I know they've seen our film, they, and I know Greenpeace knows in the, in the Rainforest Action Networks, they know this information, and they are not telling it to the public. Let's go to a, a second clip. There's another part of this film, Cowspiracy, which is about how the environmental groups responded to this. How is it possible I wasn't aware of this? I thought this information would be plastered everywhere in the environmental community. I went to the nation's largest environmental organization's websites, 350.org, Greenpeace, Sierra Club, Climate Reality, Rainforest Action Network, Amazon Watch, and was shocked to see they had virtually nothing on animal agriculture. What was going on? Why wouldn't they have this information on their main page? It seemed the main focus for many of these groups was natural gas and oil production, with fracking being the latest hot issue due to water usage and contamination. Hydraulic fracturing for natural gas uses an incredible amount of water. A staggering 100 billion gallons of water is used every year in the United States. But when I compared this with animal agriculture, raising livestock just in the U.S. consumes 34 trillion gallons of water. And it turns out the methane emissions from both industries are nearly equal. Jonathan Kaplan, is there an environmental... He didn't mention NRDC, which yeah, is where you work. Right. So <laughs> there's no conspiracy. Let me just say that now. Um, uh, you know, the, the film alleges, which I think is absurd, that you know, somehow NRDC and other green groups are taking money, perhaps, from the livestock industry to hide, to cover up uh, the impacts of this industry, which you know, is... is pretty upsetting um, as an allegation and completely without merit. And in fact, NRDC and probably lots of the other groups um, discussed in the film have done a huge amount of work over the years challenging the livestock industry, challenging their pollution, their overuse of antibiotics, the fact that these you know, confined feedlots are basically huge cities worth of manure that are completely untreated and are despoiling um, rivers and creeks and really destroying communities where they're located so I want to just get that out of the way. You know, as you said earlier, we do have a lot to agree on here. Um, we do need to reduce our meat consumption, and we need to force this industry to clean up its act. Um, I don't think it's good enough to say, you know, let's all just stop eating meat and hope everybody agrees, and that's going to be our strategy. That's not going to be a winning strategy. That's going to be part of the solution, but we also have to be there holding this industry accountable and encouraging entrepreneurs who have a more sustainable way to raise animals. That is a really important part of the story, and we have to uh, celebrate them. 
I received an email today from Anna LePay, who's author of Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork. And she wrote that environmentalists were silent for quite a while on food. They had a blind spot, not because of a conspiracy, but she admits they had a blind spot. She says the film is ridiculous and it's dangerously misleading, but enviros were late to the food game. They were behind the curve on this. Well... There is an aspect of truth to that. But in 2000, I was um, charged by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I was a senior attorney for the Environmental Group Waterkeeper Alliance, specifically to work on environmental problems related to the livestock industry. That's back in 2000. And we worked with all of the major environmental groups in the United States. And I led that campaign for two years before leaving that job. But that was the beginning of a lot of um, environmental groups working, focusing on the environmental impact um, from livestock Production. But I think the whole problem with the premise um, of the film and of sort of a lot of the discussion that's been had already is that livestock is inherently problematic, when in fact that's absolutely not true at all, because it's really about how it's done. And if it's done poorly, it can have a negative environmental impact. If it's done well, it's actually an essential part of sustainable food production. And and having now worked on this issue for the last 15 years, I would say I think there are three keys to sustainable food production, and those are water, soil, and microbiology. And in each of those three categories, livestock play an essential role. They play an essential role in building soil fertility and in soil health, and especially the microbiology of the soil and in the whole hydrological system of our world of our world and of our world food system. And there's a lot that's been written about this. I think this is actually the core of where the sustainable food movement needs to go. And this is totally ignored in the suggestion that we need to be moving towards veganism. So when you get rid of animals, you're actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater because they're an essential part of sustainable food production. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about sustainable eating and the film Cowspiracy. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Greg Dalton's back with his three guests. Kip Anderson, founder of AUM Films and co-director of Cowspiracy. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, a rancher and author of Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production. And Jonathan Kaplan, director of the Food and Agricultural Program at the National Resources Defense Council. Here's Greg. We're going to roll our third clip from Cowspiracy, and this is Michael Pollan talking about the business model of environmental groups. I think they think it's. I think they focus grouped it, and it's a political loser. In terms of yeah, because they're they're membership organizations. You know, a lot of them they're looking to maximize the number of people making contributions, and if they get identified as being anti-meat or challenging people on their everyday habits, that's something that's so dear to people that uh, it will hurt with their fundraising. Jonathan Kaplan, strong words from a very respected food guru saying that groups like NRDC don't want to be food nags. Is he right? First of all, I am very unhappy with the suggestion that we're sort of profit, you know, motivated, right? The people at NRDC could be making a lot more money working for some private company somewhere. So we're not doing this to raise money. Um, We are a membership organization, and we are a policy change organization. To change policy in this country, you need members. You need to have a large group of people behind you, and we do. We have 1.3 million members and online advocates behind our work, and that allows us to be persuasive in the halls of Congress or with regulators and so on. So, yes, we do have to make sure that our messages are inclusive, and we don't think it's necessarily a good strategy to be out there with the message telling people that they're the problem. Now, does that mean we should be silent about it? No. We need to give people the facts, as Kip said. We need to let people understand that their food choices matter. They matter a lot. And we need to encourage people to take steps to you know, move down the spectrum toward a more sustainable diet. But we don't think it's necessarily the best strategy 
to come out of the gate and tell everybody that they have to go to zero animal products consumption today. And it's really important to note that Michael Pollan is in fact an omnivore and has repeatedly written and spoken about the importance of livestock in the food system to, in getting towards a more sustainable food system. So when we're talking about Michael Pollan, it's really important to note he's not a vegan and he doesn't believe in veganism as the solution for food system problems. So how about Kip Anderson? Is It's... Uh I get the sense you're coming at it from a humane perspective that killing animals is wrong, that there's a moral issue underneath this. I get the sense it wasn't really. Well, what Keith's kid brought up, and it just reminds me over and over and over, and we're doing a new film on health, is the, the similarities between the animal agriculture industry, raising animals for food, and the tobacco industry. The exact same thing is coming out right now that happened in the tobacco industry 20 years ago. It was, un- it was covered up for so long, and then all of a sudden a wave came of truth. And so, you know, about the antibiotics, it's, it's true. It's one of the biggest dangers of facing the entire planet. One outbreak could kill millions and millions. But to say, again, not to tell people not to smoke or not to, not to eat meat. We're just asking them. It's like asking Marlboro. Let's ask Marlboro to not put chemicals in their cigarettes. Why not just say, hey, let's not stop smoking cigarettes. Let's skip. We're not babies. We don't need to do baby steps. We're big adults. <clears throat> I, I think there's a, there's a huge problem with, with um, the suggestion that repeatedly that this is what's motivating environmental advocacy, the fact that it's too hard to tell people not to do this. Because as someone who's been working on environmental issues for a long time and who majored in biology and worked as an environmental lawyer, I can tell you that there is no evidence at all that the optimal food system from an ecological standpoint excludes animals entirely. And in fact, there's a great deal of evidence to the contrary. And I think the one piece of um, sort of written literature I really want people to look at is that a new study that was just published by Dr. Richard Teague and Dr. Ratan Lal, who's one of the leading soil scientists in the world, which is entitled The Role of Ruminants in Reducing Agriculture's Carbon Footprint in North America. This is a brand new peer-reviewed study in the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation, and they conclude that actually having more ruminants on the landscape in the United States would be a step forward from a climate change perspective. So this is not at all, there is no factual or scientific basis for the claim that the optimal system excludes animals. It's just not true. Jonathan Kaplan, can cows be part of the carbon solution? Yes, but we've got to have fewer cows. I I think there's a lot of evidence that shows when you have crop livestock integrated farms. You can close the loop on nitrogen. The farmer doesn't have to buy synthetic fertilizer to put on the crops that he can grow or she can grow the feed for the animals. It's, you know, it's a much more sustainable system than the one we've got now. Kip Anderson, a lot of people switch from dairy to other sources of milk, almond milk. Almonds use a tremendous amount of water. Uh, One thing I've learned in environmental inquiry the last 10 years is sometimes the solution is worse than the first thing. Um, So how do you feel about people say, okay, no dairy, but then we're drinking almond milk and growing almonds in a drought in California. Well, if you watch the film, to make one gallon of cow's milk takes upwards of a thousand <coughs> gallons of water. There's absolutely no comparison when you compare that to soy milk. Almond milk definitely takes a lot. I don't, we don't recommend uh, to anyone drinking almond milk every day. You can drink soy, you can drink cashew, you can drink coconut milk. And they are incredibly, incredibly more sustainable, not only more sustainable, but the ethical choice as well. No splitting up of, of, of you know, the mother-child relationship, of the veal industry. <clears throat> you know, eventually when the cow, after it finishes producing milk and lost around five of her calves, then she's killed for hamburgers. It's all just, it, you, you remove all that. You can go directly to the source where, where most of these big animals get their protein is directly from plants. And so... I think you can see that a lot of this is motivated by a desire not to kill animals. And I think that's fine if a person wants to make that dietary choice. But it's really important to understand when ruminants are consuming water and you see those water footprint numbers, 98% of the water that they're consuming, in those, that it's calculated in those water footprint numbers, is green water. In other words, it's the water from rainfall in the forages that they're consuming. So those water footprint numbers used in the film and that are commonly bandied about are totally meaningless when you're talking about truly sustainable food production. What matters is blue water, which is the irrigation water, which, by the way, is a lot higher in almond milk production than it is in dairy production. We're going to go to our lightning round in which we ask each of the guests today to answer a brief yes or no question, Uh, starting with Jonathan Kaplan. 
The issue environmentalists really don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole is human population. Yes or no? Wow, ambush. <laughs> uh, I, I think I, that question is above my pay grade. I, you know, I... That's right, we're doing yes or no, so you can punt on that one. You can, uh, Kip Anderson, most people in developing countries would continue to eat animal protein even if they were aware of negative impacts on the Earth's climate. Uh, yes or no? Totally agree, yeah, it's extremely addictive. Uh, Nicolette Hahn Nyman, eating a hamburger, which in America or just about everywhere else is probably made with industrial meat, is one of the most damaging things a person can do to the Earth's climate. Yes or no? Absolutely not true. Jonathan Kaplan. Uh, Are you going to let me swing again at the population um, question? NRDC accepts don- donations from companies in the agricultural and food industries. Yes or no? No. Kip Anderson, in making Cowspiracy, you modeled facts to your vegan thesis rather than going where the data and story led you. Yes or no? Absolutely not. Nicolette Hahn Nyman, the grazing practices you advocate for keeping water and carbon in the soil are too complicated for most ranchers. Oh, definitely not true. I mean, you just have to look at somebody like Gabe Brown, and he's not a soil scientist, and he's showing the world how this can be done on basically any farmer ranch. Jonathan Kaplan, uh, NRDC contributes to deforestation by mailing paper solicitations and other materials to <laughs> 2.4 million members and activists. Yes or no? Uh, what time does the show end? <laughs> <laughs> 34 you know, minutes. I, again, yes, there's an impact to that, but we are a grassroots membership-based organization, and that still is a really important way to build our membership and, and build our power. So Can, we, we also fly our staff to meetings around the country. That has a huge carbon impact. We run our computers and so on. So okay. we, are, we do the best we can, but yes, there are environmental costs to it. Kip Anderson, managed carefully, livestock can be part of a balanced ecosystem that serves humans and nature. A hundred years ago, maybe now seven billion people, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Kaplan, cowspiracy exaggerates the carbon hey, you pollution. Me. Um, it's all different order. You, you, yours is coming. <laughs> You can have mine. I get all the music. <laughs> you, know, you, you really don't seem to want them. Jonathan Kaplan, cowspiracy exaggerates the carbon pollution coming from animal agriculture. Yes or no? I think so. Last one. Nicolette Hahn Nyman. Some environmentalists are preachy and righteous. Hmm. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Anyone sitting here on the stage today that fits that description? Careful. <laughs> there's, there's, there are people who think that they're environmentalists that are preachy and self-righteous. For All sure. right. Uh, uh, uh. That ends our lightning round. How did, how did they do? I think they did pretty well. Let's give them a round for <laughs> uh, Let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, my name is Leila Salazar-Lopez. I'm the executive director of Amazon Watch, and some of you might have seen me in the film <laughs> Cowspiracy. Um, so I was actually in the film. I didn't know it was a film about animal agriculture. I thought it was a film about sustainability when I was interviewed. So I was pretty shocked and disappointed, actually, Kip, when I saw the film. Not because of the issue of we need to get animal ag you know, in the forefront of the environmental and climate debate, I agree with you. It's a major, major problem that we all need to be addressing and working together on, not spreading and dividing, which is, I think, actually what you've done. So, All right, thank you. Um, Kip Anderson, uh, your film divided and made environmentalists mad at each other and mad at you. So, for example, that what we did is when we interviewed these organizations, we said it was the leading cause of, of environmental destruction. For this specifically, Rainforest Action Network, Amazon Watch, what is the leading cause of deforestation? By far, by far, nothing even comes close as raising animals for food. And again, if you watch the interview for a longer period of time, and we actually left a lot of it in there, it took so long for her to finally admit it. And once she finally admit it, it's one of the favorite parts because she starts telling the truth, and that's where the story changes to actually truth being told. And people who are vegan and people of, are, are all rocks of life, she's one of the favorite characters because she's the moment where the film takes someone actually telling the truth. So I'm not sure if she realizes that, but she's a huge hero in a lot of people's eyes, and she probably doesn't realize it. And 
One of the elements of that, what you call moment of truth, is that people fear for their lives, that people who fight ranchers die, get yeah, killed. And that, that was that. part of the fear. Uh, journalists have to be wary of lawsuits for the same reason. Uh, let's go to the next question from Climate One. Uh, this question is for Nyman. Uh, what would be your response to the research that has recently come out from the University of Illinois and Climate Healers that said that if we removed cattle from land that was formerly forest, so just grass-fed animals, and allowed the native forest to come back, that we'd be able to sequester more carbon than we've emitted since the industrial era? We'd be able to sequester 265 gigatons of carbon from the atmosphere, which is more than the 240 gigatons we've emitted. Well, if you're taking land out of food production and you're returning it to forest, yes, that's definitely going to be beneficial regardless of what the land is being used for. But the paper I was just talking about a few minutes ago makes it very clear that if you're talking about crop production versus livestock production, the ruminants, if they're well managed, are going to be actually better for the climate. And so that study is it's not that helpful in this discussion, I don't think. We're going to wrap it up here by asking each of you quickly, what's one food to avoid if you're a climatarian, you want to eat a climate-friendly diet, uh, and one food that you should go for? Jonathan Kaplan, a climate-friendly food and a climate-unfriendly food. Avoid industrial-sourced beef and eat more mm, popsicles. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Nicolette Hahn-Nyman. I would avoid uh, potato chips. They've been shown to have one of the highest um, carbon footprints of any food. And I would seek out well-raised, grass-fed beef from a local farmer ranch, someone you know. Kip Anderson. Dairy, more than anything. Dairy is probably the most unsustainable. And then to avoid eating the plethora of vegetables. And take, you pick one. Your favorite. Vegetables. <laughs> Greg Dalton has been discussing meat production and consumption with Kip Anderson, co-director of the film Cowspiracy, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, author of Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production, and Jonathan Kaplan, director of the Food and Agricultural Program at the National Resources Defense Council. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our free podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Devin Strolovich, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.